What is your killer strategy? The one that gives your business the ultimate bulletproof competitive advantage. Welcome to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. Former professional blackjack player and card counter who left Las Vegas and spent his life in that giant casino on Wall Street in the hedge fund and venture capital businesses. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wake up and worry about what options exist for your company? If you're having trouble keeping up with technology, the pace of change, and all these other issues that are happening in the world, there has to be a way to turn them into something positive, and you have to find some options for your business, but you don't necessarily know what they are. And worse, you may not know how to find them. To address some of those issues, Dominic Wells. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is interesting. So your company, uh, just uh, to recap, uh, has a big pool of money, and you buy other companies, and you you're sort of like private equity. I mean, is that is would that be a fair statement? Yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. We've been referred to as kind of uh, the Berkshire Hathaway of of internet businesses. Um, so, so your your particular focus is digital marketing companies, digital internet type companies. Yeah, online businesses. So we have some e-commerce businesses. We have some uh, agencies. We have um, some WordPress software plugins. Um, kind of a kind of a wide range, but it's always online, and it's something where digital marketing is like the key driver of growth. Okay, so just just to get everybody on the same page. So you've got a company, it's a public company, it's a Nasdaq company and and this pool of money is for buying companies and you buy 100% of the company. You don't, you know, you don't make like venture capital investments in companies. You're buying them outright and they become part of your portfolio. Yeah, correct. Yeah, sometimes it might be 90%, but yeah, we're buying majority interest rather than making like like seed investments or anything. So and, and do they do they end up under a common management or do they end up uh, all as little individual deals? Yeah, it's the latter. Sometimes there might it might make sense to fold a company into it, make it a division of an existing one, but the idea is we we run in a very decentralized way, install a, a CEO or general manager into every acquisition, um, and they're all standalone businesses. Okay, and. Um... And what size companies are you looking for? You're looking generally for smaller companies and not larger ones, it seems like. Yeah, the, the sweet spot for us is a business that's doing maybe one to three million dollars in in EBITDA. So pretty small. Oh, in EBITDA. So there, so and what what revenue might that size company have? Uh well, it, it really depends on the business. If it's an e-commerce one, it might have 10 million revenue. If it's an agency, maybe similar, but uh, some of the businesses we buy have really, uh, really good margins. So two million EBITDA might be only three million revenue. So it's it's yeah. quite a range. Yeah. So how, how do you value these companies? How do you how do you price them? How do you figure out what they're what they're doing? Usually, it's a multiple of the trailing twelve months. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's it's usually adjusted EBITDA because usually the seller of the business pays themselves a salary. And so they're going to leave, and we're going to have their salary as our, you know, our new earnings and and stuff. Um, so usually we might pay something like four times, um, four times EBITDA. So you know, a business doing one million dollars in profit might cost us four million, maybe three, maybe four and a half. Um, 
which is kind of why we play in that size because if you go higher in in um in size then you have to pay higher multiples as well yeah i mean it it seems like if somebody's doing four million and they're bringing two or two and a half to the bottom line that that business would be worth a lot it seems to me like your your yield on that money is pretty good yeah well you know i think part of the reason is kind of similar to what you were saying as the the opening intro to this this episode and online business moves so quickly that there is a bit of a mispricing in assets this size because people view them as a lot riskier than you know something with stable recurring revenues well the other thing is it seems like they uh, they have to strike while the iron's hot because uh they're bringing in a bunch of dough right now but the market could change right from out from under them and they could uh, you know be cut in half in two weeks yeah i mean we uh we try to buy businesses where that risk isn't there but yeah like that's totally something that happens to people i mean that is a real that is a real risk in small technology companies is that uh, you know even google right this minute with the uh with the introduction of chat gpt uh they're they're shaking in their boots because they're worried that they they had a lock on the whole uh on on the whole search business and all of a sudden uh, gpt might be introducing a better way of doing it right so even at the big level uh disruption is possible and it happens yeah, and I don't think, you know, they're, they're just trying to fight ChatGPT by rolling out their own inferior version of it, um, which is kind of what they did with Google Plus when they tried to fight Facebook. And so, um, yeah, I'm not really sure how well they're going to do with that. Yeah, but but look, the bottom line is that uh, disruption happens. Todd, let's talk about disruption for a minute because disruption is real. Uh, I, don't, I don't care if you run a manufacturing company, whatever kind of company the people are who listen to our show. Uh, what are some of the kinds of disruption that you've seen uh, company's face. You know, what are, what are you, uh, what do you see? Oh uh, yeah. So many things. <laughs> um, I think the biggest one in, in the, the kind of size that we're playing in is that a lot of businesses are built around a single strategy or, um, a single thing, which is, is working, but you don't know how long it's going to work for. So to give an example, uh, let's say we're, we're looking to acquire a marketing agency and, that marketing agency might do one specific thing. Like let's say they, they run Facebook ads for companies or they, uh, they help companies grow their Amazon store or something like that. And you can do all the due diligence in the world and find out if they're, if they're good at what they do, customers get good results and so on. But at the end of the day, you don't know if, um, that strategy or the the thing they fulfill is even going to be around in three or four years. So it it doesn't matter if you get, if you only have to pay four X for it. So, you know, what we look at is, is this a business that's pivotable? So kind of going back to the, the Amazon example, that's a lot more risky because if Amazon says, you know what, we're going to get rid of third party sellers, then that business basically goes to zero. Whereas if it's a, an SEO agency, which helps people rank at the top of Google, or it's um, a general paid traffic agency rather than one that just focuses on, say, Facebook ads or Twitter ads or something, that business always has the ability to just kind of almost disrupt itself by rolling out new services as they as as trends emerge. And um, yeah, so th- those are some of the issues that a lot of them would face. You know, I've recently seen... Uh advertisements or you know some kind of promotion material for uh for software companies that are uh, uh displacing facebook ad agencies they're displacing uh you know copywriters i mean all kinds of things are being displaced and there's all kinds of change uh 
I don't think anybody's safe. I mean, I think the only safe thing is to always be up, be up on your guard. You know, I mean, that's that's it, right? Yeah, exactly. And always, there's kind of two plays, I guess. Either you get in and you get out before something changes, or you you kind of always leave the door open to being able to start something else. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty complicated. Pretty must be nerve wracking, huh? I mean, when you're thinking about these things. I mean, I've been doing it 10 years, so you, <laughs> you kind of yeah. get used to it. So in, in 10 but, uh, years, yeah. have, have you made a couple mistakes? I mean, have you ever had the wind knock down Yeah, we've had acquisitions that have gone wrong, or I've only been acquiring companies for, say, five or six years. So in the first few years, I had, I had things like I would have a website ranking at the top of Google and getting tons of visitors every day and making pretty good money and then suddenly it goes to zero because Google thinks you're manipulating something and it, it penalizes you or, or maybe you rely too much on, on Pinterest for your traffic and, and that, that goes to zero. So, um, yeah, a lot of mistakes. I think probably so what, one of the what, biggest. So, so what are some of the lessons? I mean, what are some of the things, I mean, you've correct, made a lot of corrections. Uh, you know, what are, what are some of the course corrections that you've made? What are some of the lessons? So with online business, I would say, I think one of the big things I learned is that uh, probably two main things. The first is you should never either have a business or buy a business, which is too reliant on a single channel. So it could be a single product that they sell. It could be a single marketing channel like Google or Facebook ads or something. Um, And the other thing is, we, so again, I don't know how relevant this is going to be for a lot of people in your audience, but a lot of people who want to own multiple online businesses or run multiple online businesses assume the way to do it is to have one central team who is good at everything and then kind of deploy them across all of their businesses so that you get the the operating leverage and you save costs and synergies and so on. But in reality, you kind of just need to well, you you just need to have people focused on every on their on one single business so that they can see what's moving, what's happening. They can understand what the opportunities are, what the customers' problems are. Um, so it took us a couple of years to really learn that the hard way with maybe underperforming in some of the businesses we ran because we were just spreading ourselves too thin. You know, I think that I think that information is relevant uh, across every single industry that there is because if. Uh, you know, if, if companies own uh, different kinds of businesses and, and many families or many businesses do, uh, you know, then you can end up with a similar kind of situation. I, I mean, it seems common sense that you try to centralize uh, somewhat, like if you own different franchises. But I guess that that kind of presupposes that if you own a, a bunch of McDonald's franchises, that they're all the same. But you're talking about businesses that are all different from each other. And and I wonder, you know, how do you make efficiencies in a business where everything is different from each other? Well, yeah, that's exactly it. If we were doing a roll-up and every business was the same and maybe the one thing that was different was the geography or something, then I think centralized services makes makes more sense. Um, how do we find efficiencies? Well, I think really the key is you kind of spot them before you buy the business. And so... Um, even though a lot of these businesses have different verticals that they're in or different business models, a lot of the, the backend infrastructure is the same. A lot of the levers that you pull are the same. And so, for example, maybe you find a business where, uh, I mean, 
uh, I can't give certain examples, I guess, but um, you might look at a business where it does, let's say, $5 million in revenue in a year, uh, and it has 60,000 customers on its email list, and those customers receive one email a month. And the reason could be the the owner of the business doesn't know how to do email marketing and he just sees cash coming in every day. So he thinks, okay, I'll worry about that later. Or he doesn't like email marketing or just he hadn't thought of sending more emails. And so you can identify that and you can say, look, we're not going to overpay for this business because we may, you know, we may come in and turns out we're wrong, but nine times out of 10, something like that is going to be a home run. You buy the business, you come in and you just increase the email marketing. And so that even though I just said we can't have one team doing everything, uh, you can't have one person running like the email marketing for 10 different businesses, but the things that you do for those businesses is more or less the same across each one. You just have different people doing it. So that I guess the efficiencies is really, it's kind of like our shared brain and our best practices and the, the knowledge we've acquired over the years. I don't know. It seems like, uh, you know, certain things like accounting, certain kinds of marketing functions could be centralized and you could have a couple of people that are handling it for multiple different companies. I mean, it seems like you might get some efficiencies that way. Sure. Some of them. Yeah. I mean, accounting, HR, that kind of stuff we do centralize because <laughs> typically we hire entrepreneurs to run these businesses and they're not really interested in that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, like maybe we share some software across companies as well because you get cheaper Cheaper software costs if you if you amortize right, so you, it across right, the whole company, share, but you share the cost of your subscriptions. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I guess my key thing is we don't we don't have one person who's running the marketing for multiple companies because um, it's just too too distracting and you're going to get average results. Whereas if you had five people running marketing for five different businesses, um, you'll get much better results. So what's the uh, what's the environment like? I mean, is uh, we just came through a pandemic? Did more people want to sell uh, post pandemic, pre pandemic? I mean, you know, what what are you what are you seeing about the world? Um, the market was really frothy in twenty twenty one. So just like pretty much every asset class, you know, we were in a an everything bubble. Um, so there were a lot of a lot of aggregators, a lot of people doing roll-ups, a lot of public companies, private companies, um, individuals with access to SBA loans, a lot of cheap debt. And so there was a little bit of a land grab and everyone was buying everything. And you know, we were kind of scratching our heads because we were thinking, well, a lot of these businesses aren't worth anywhere near what people are paying. But you know, we sure like access to all of that capital. <laughs> so... What we've seen in 2022 is the market's cooled off a little bit, both in terms of valuations and just volume of transactions. In fact, I think volume of transactions has really fallen off a cliff. And so what we're finding now with sellers, I don't think there's necessarily more people looking to sell, but the sellers are much more willing to accept terms that are maybe... I wouldn't say more favorable to the buyer, but more favorable to the buyer than they used to be. So you in the past, we might see a business and say, okay, we want to pay 20% upfront, a 50% earn out, a 30% seller note or something like that. And the seller wouldn't consider it because some other lunatic was coming in with like, you know, an all cash offer 
20% more than we were offering. Uh, whereas now sellers will be, you know, they'll be much more willing to, to, to listen to, um, different structures. So yeah, I think the market's still alive. It's just, um, a little bit less competitive, which is nice so, for us. So, you know, I mean, what's a typical structure look like? I mean, is, is that 20, 30 earn out things that kind of how you do it? I mean, is, how, how do you like to do your deals? Um, it varies. I mean, I think 20% was quite extreme. What we typically do is we actually typically offer a number of structures. So, um, our last four deals we did are, are all public information. We filed with the SEC for them, so I can kind of talk about them. But um, the very last one we did actually was all cash, but it was for a very attractive multiple. And we said to the seller, uh, you know, we can give you 70% of what you're asking, um, like 50% of it up front, 20% of it after a year, and the final 30% tied to an earnout, or we'll give you 100%. Up front, no strings attached, but for I think it was almost only seventy percent of what the total asking price was um and he he went for the certainty rather than the the hassle of the earnout um and then another offer we did it was just i think we paid forty five percent up front and then the, the final fifty five percent is guaranteed, but it's on a on a on a promissory note where we're paying three percent and then yeah, some of the others are somewhere in between where maybe we pay half up front and then the other half is an earn out um, over, say, two-year period or something. The, the periods ever, are usually a lot sh shorter than private equity anyway. Do you, ever, do you ever buy any of these companies with your company stock? Not yet. We haven't done that. Um, with the markets where they are and the kind of equity prices where they are, we, we would much rather uh, issue debt um, or just pay with cash because, um, you know, these companies, the, the multiples we're paying and they're all profitable businesses with, with very nice cash flows. So if they can support reasonable debt terms, even with the slightly increased cost of capital that we're seeing now, um, that's still cheaper cost of capital for us than, than issuing stock. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, um, how's, how's your stock price doing? Um, I mean, you know, not, not great. <laughs> um, I mean, the small, but, uh, listen, the technology been, and the small caps certainly are, are, have taken a bigger hit than anybody else, but are you guys hanging in there? I mean, is it, uh, I mean, I mean, if your price is low, that, that would, uh, maybe that's a reason why you want to, uh, you know, use cash and other, other vehicles. Yeah, but, exactly. We, you know, we feel we're pretty undervalued. So that's another reason why we, we don't want to use stock. Um, but yeah, the stock's up. Well, we IPO'd in August last year and, got hammered and then the stock's been clawing its way back up. So the the three month, six month charts look pretty good. Um but we still feel, you know, we're we're trading lower than we should be. So let's talk for a minute about um about how you uh you know how you as the senior executive uh bring the price of the stock up. I mean you're you're the CEO of this company, right? Yeah. And, okay. So uh, it's a relatively small public company. What things are you doing to make the stock price go higher besides doing the best you can to operate a good company? Uh, well, I mean, that's a large part of it is, is you kind of have to execute first and then the price will eventually take care of itself. But, um, you know, really for a small cap like us, it's just telling the story 
um, coming on podcasts like this and 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 more investor focused podcasts and yeah, just basically telling the story because I think when people understand the story, um, not everybody gets it or wants to buy straight away. But you know, we're not going to get the price up unless people hear about us and see what we're doing and and then they follow us for a little while and realize we're executing how we say we're going to and hopefully they become long-term shareholders and we're pretty thinly traded into uh, well um there's not a lot of outstanding float as well so that means that any kind of buying pressure that comes in can can move the price pretty pretty significantly as well yeah what's the uh, what's the revenue base of your of the of the holding company um I'm just trying to think what's public and what isn't. Um, we in in 2021 we we did about 1.6 million revenue, and then in 2022 um, we were tr- tracking about 1.2. But then we've had acquisitions that make the pro forma around five million for the the trade in 12 months, and then our 10k hasn't come out yet for the full year of 2022. So yeah. can't uh, can't share that yet. And all of this is being done by acquisition, right? There's there's nothing uh, organic about. Well, it, it grows organically. Each I mean, company grows yeah. organically, but the majority of the activity is by aggregating companies together. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, of course we we try and get as much organic growth in the companies as we can. But with the the number of acquisitions we're making, the, most of that growth is driven by acquisition. Yeah. Well, it sounds pretty interesting. I mean, it sounds like a uh, like a different kind of business model. I mean, most of the private equity companies, I would say most of them, well, they're not all doing roll-ups and a lot of them kind of spread themselves across uh, different industries, you know, but inside of a same, inside of a focus, the same way that you guys do. I mean, so, you know, you, you have a pretty clear focus, but you're, that technology space is pretty big. I mean, it's, uh, how do you, how do you put some guardrails around, you know, exactly what you're going to get involved in? Um, it's kind of about adjacency. So while we're, we're, we're niche agnostic, we, we really need to be able to understand the business that we're doing due diligence on. And uh, we need to know that we have an ability to find someone who can run it. So the reason I say adjacency is if we're running marketing agencies and another agency comes along, it's feasible for us to be able to jump into that space. Or if we're, you know, we're in this space and something similar comes along, we can look into it, but we're not going to start producing online movies, for example, because it's just too far out there for us. So there's a little bit of that, excuse me, a little bit of, um, yeah, just what we can understand. And, um, you know, we also have other criteria. So the business needs to be trending in a certain way, or it needs to operate in a certain way. It needs to have certain margins and certain, um, it can't rely too much on a single thing or, or, or on a founder or something like that. So that kind well, of let, naturally let ask, installs guardrails. Let, let me ask another uh, thing. I mean, cause you're pretty clear about what it is that you're looking for. And that clarity is uh, a big part of your secret sauce. I mean, I, I, I know that from my own experience, I imagine, right. Hmm. Um, do companies yeah. approach you and say, Hey, listen, would you acquire us? Are you getting approached at all? Yeah, especially since going public, that was one of the main reasons why we went public. Um, I probably get two or three of those a day in my inbox. Well, so the companies that approach you, uh, I imagine many of which don't understand hardly anything about what it is you do or what you're looking for. Uh, you know, 
how well prepared are these companies when they approach you, uh, you know, to talk to you about something that's relevant for you? Uh, it varies widely. So people typically come to us because they've heard me on a podcast or they've seen the profile of the company somewhere. And we're quite quick to be able to say, okay, here's what we need. And, you know, do we think it's a fit or not? And so basically people reach out and it's either not a fit and that's very obvious very early on or we might say okay sounds interesting tell us more here's an nda you know here's what we need um typically though if they reach out to us they're they're prepared mentally in that you know they want to have a discussion uh maybe their their books are not in fantastic order but yeah they're prepared in in terms of you know wanting to open that conversation you know but what i what i wonder is um how often do they kind of get close to your sweet spot or are, do they just bring all kinds of junk to the table that is, uh, that is far away from, you know, what you might be interested in? Yeah. I mean, well, it's, yeah, it's everything, <laughs> but because <laughs> we as a leadership team, and I guess myself as well, we're well known in the, the industry that we play in. So when people who operate the types of businesses that we buy think about selling their business, they they know that we're a buyer. We're not the only buyer, but they'll think. So for example, I had someone reach out to me today who knows that we acquired two businesses similar to his in the last few months. And so he said, Hey, are you interested in buying mine? I had someone message me on LinkedIn about four days ago, same thing. And so that doesn't, so basically, yeah, the, the people who are in our sweet spot, they actually know about us. And that's just because we're good at content marketing and so on. And then we also get all the other people who maybe aren't in the sweet spot and they know about us and, you know, they message us. And sometimes it's still a fit. Most of the time it's like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And we, we try to point them in the right direction if we can. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, the, uh, the goal of our show is to deliver the inside track on, uh, on, on all kinds of different topics. And this is an interesting one. Uh, you know, and you've talked about the inside track, which we think about as being the best, smartest or fastest way to get something done. And if you're finding that, uh, you know, you're kind of at the end of your rope, you're kind of nervous about competition, change of pace and the marketplace, you know, whatever it is, um, the kinds of things, Dominic, that you're talking about, you know, must be interesting to people. And, uh, and, you know, the one thing that I always, uh, am, am interested to understand is what's your advantage play? What's the one thing that you guys do, the killer strategy that you guys employ that either helps you find great companies, evaluate great companies? What's the secret sauce for making your company successful in the long run? Uh, for us, it's our ability to, to really know what's a good business to buy for us. So there's there's kind of a distinction between is this a good business and is it a good business for us? Um, and that might be sometimes there's businesses that would be great for a single person to buy for themselves and operate, but not good for us to install management into. Uh, or sometimes there's a business that needs too much technical knowledge. Um, and so to apply that to something that everybody could really relate to, it's it's really just knowing what our limitations are and where we know we can do well and where we are a lot more nervous and and kind of as much as we can sticking to that and yeah. exercise you know, and discipline. 
most of the time, you know, when when I talk about what's your killer strategy, people start getting all, uh, you know, they go start getting all deep and very philosophical. But I think what you just <laughs> said is that sometimes it's as simple as knowing your limitations, which is not so easier said than done, I guess, in a lot of cases. So that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah, it helps to have a conservative CFO as well. <laughs> it really helps you keep keep that discipline. Well, listen, when when uh, when guests come on the show, they deliver the uh, inside track. They know their advantage play. They really kind of get where they're coming from. Uh, we call those people advantage players, and you certainly uh, you know hit the mark. So uh, we appreciate you coming on the show and sharing what it is you know, and uh, we hope that you'll stay a friend of the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Oh, very good. Listen, thanks very much, and uh, we appreciate it. been listening to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. To learn more about how to work with Joel and cultivate your own high-limit advantage plays, visit theadvantageplayer.com. Subscribe to Your Advantage Play wherever you get your podcasts.